Romans 13, verse 8. So I've titled this, Living Worthy Lives. That might uh, be kind of a strange thing to say, because when we think of worthy, we don't usually think of ourselves. Right? We think of the Lord. God is worthy. God is worthy of, of all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. He's worthy of our lives and nothing less. And in fact, He's worthy of so much more than we could ever give Him. Amen? Sometimes I think we're not even worthy to ascribe worth to such a worthy God. And yet, we've been invited to do so. However, the Bible does describe us at times as worthy or those who are to live worthy lives. And so Colossians 1.10, it says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're told that we should walk worthy of the Lord. Philippians 1.27 says, only let your conduct be what? Worthy. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we are to let our conduct be worthy of what? The gospel. Ephesians 4.1 says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So we're to walk worthy of the calling. So we have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ, and we are to walk worthy. So what does that mean? What do these verses mean? What are they saying when they say that we are to walk worthy? So we are to live worthy, walk worthy. And what does that mean? It simply means to live a life that is consistent, that flows out of our profession. We have professed to be followers of Christ, those who have said yes to the gospel, those who are living for Jesus, and we are to live in such a way that reflects that in a fitting way. We are to live fitting lives. Lives that demonstrate that we are indeed Christ and that He is ours. And that's what Paul is really getting at in this latter part of the book of Romans. We spent the first 11 chapters dealing with wonderful theology, who God is and what God has done for us and all that is ours in Christ. And then he goes into chapter 12 and begins to talk about the way that we're supposed to live in light of all of that. When we recognize who God is and what God has accomplished and what is available to us in Christ, that affects the way that we live our lives. And see, a lot of times we get it backwards. We think that we have to get ourselves right. We have to fix ourselves, change ourselves, and then come to God. But God doesn't work that way. God reveals Himself to us. He shows us who He is, and He brings us into the knowledge of what He has done and and then when we realize that is ours, it, it causes us from the inside out to, to want to love the Lord and to walk with Him and to serve Him and obey Him. Amen? And so that is the way that it is always laid out for us. When you look at the, so many of the books of the New Testament, it starts by talking about God, and then it goes into how then shall we live our lives. And so we are to live worthy lives, lives that are fitting of the profession that we have made our calling, our love for the gospel, our conduct. And so today we are in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, and this is very much what we see in the text before us. 
And so I have it outlined in two main headings. Two main headings. And so the first one is living under the law of love. And the second one is living in the light of Christ. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So we're told to owe nobody anything except love. We are to owe one another a debt of love. Now, this is interesting to me because Paul just said in the previous verse, remember last week, he said that we're to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. We do owe something and we are to pay. We are to make good on it. We are to pay taxes, as, as it said. And that's a whole other study. You can go back to that last week if you would like online and check that out. And now he says, owe nobody anything. So what is going on here? It almost seems somewhat of a, a, a disconnect or a contradiction. But this is, a, uh, I think, a clever way of shifting from one topic to the next. And so this is a transition. And he's saying, just as we had an obligation to the government, an obligation to give honor and fear and to pay taxes, we have an obligation to our neighbors. We are to pay our neighbors a debt of love. And that's a debt that we can never fully pay off. And that's why that is one area that we are allowed to owe, because you can never truly discharge that in full. We are to be those who love our neighbors. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Paul is transitioning at this point from the, the Christian's duty to the government to the Christian's duty to his neighbors. And we are to owe our neighbors a debt of love. And so um, what is this not saying? Some people have taken this to mean that you can never be in debt at all. You can never borrow money, never, never lend money. And you can understand why, but that's, that's not really what this is saying. It's not literally saying you can never borrow or lend. Uh, one, one commentator, Leon Morris, said this, Paul is not forbidding borrowing. Jesus permitted this in fi uh, Matthew 5.42. And circumstances may well arise in anyone's life in which a debt is permissible. But Paul is saying that the believer should not leave debts unpaid. They should be settled promptly. The present imperative will have a continuous force. And so basically it's saying don't continue owing, pay your debt. So that's the idea. It's not that we can never, never uh, borrow money or lend money, but the idea is that as Christians we are to be those who pay our debts promptly. We don't want to incur a debt that we cannot pay, but there are obviously reasons, uh, times when it is necessary to borrow. So that's just not what Paul is getting at here. He's simply saying that there is one debt that you can never fully discharge, and that is the debt of love. F.F. Bruce says, let your only outstanding debt be the debt of love, for that debt can never be discharged in full. Amen? So that is one area where we definitely want to go in debt. I mean, we want to be loving each other as Christians, as brothers and sisters. We are to love one another, to love our neighbors. And we're told that is a debt right there that we will never fully be able to pay. So there was another debt that we owed that we could not pay. Does anybody know what debt that was? It was a sin debt. We owed a sin debt that we could not pay. And we were going to have to pay and the Bible says that if you have to pay that debt on your own, you'll spend all of eternity paying that debt. 
separated from God in a horrible place called hell. But see, God is gracious and He is kind and He is generous and He sought to save us from that. And so He paid our debt for us. Amen? I mean, glory to God. He sent His Son Jesus to pay that sin debt. And that's what the cross is all about. That is exactly what the cross is. We owed a debt that we could never truly and fully pay. And Christ was the only one qualified as the God-man. He was God in the flesh and He lived a life of perfect obedience that we could never ever live. We haven't lived, nor will we ever. But also as man in the flesh, human nature, He was able to live in our place and take the punishment that man deserved. And so there on the cross, our sin debt was paid in full. And that's why Jesus said what? At the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And that's what he was saying. The debt is paid. All that was required has been paid in full there at the cross. And if you trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, your sin was paid for there on the cross. Your sin debt was wiped away, never to be remembered anymore because God paid it in full in His Son there at the cross. So as a result of that, we have another debt. We have a debt of love to God, first and foremost, when you realize what God has done for you. When I realize what God has done for me, I realize I love God. I love my Heavenly Father. I love what He has accomplished for me and His Son. I love my Savior. Hallelujah. And I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We are one in the blood of Jesus. And we love each other. And that's the idea. That's the idea. And so he says, He who loves another has fulfilled the law. If we love one another, we are fulfilling the law of God. Now, now how can that be? Well, what Paul is referring to here is what we oftentimes call what? The greatest command. The greatest command. And he's referencing the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Quick question. Does anybody know how many laws there were in the Old Testament? If you know this, I'm going to be so impressed. 613. Who said that? That's amazing. All right. 613 laws. 248 positive ones, 365 negative ones. I mean, could you imagine being under that to try to be pleasing to God? You have, I mean, who could even remember five laws? 613. So there's 248 things you must do and 365 things you must never do. And so the law was a burden that no one could truly carry or fulfill. And Christ came to fulfill that law. Christ kept that law perfectly for us. And so Jesus, praise God, really simplified these commands for us. And so in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So these 613 laws have been summed up in two. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I praise God that He made it just that simple. 
We really complicate things, don't we? We overcomplicate things all the time. And Jesus made it so easy for us. Love God, give God all that you have, all that you are. Give Him your first and your best, and to love others as you would love yourself. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Well, Paul goes on to elaborate a little bit on this this concept in verse 9. So he says, verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So in the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Decalogue, there are really two tables, if you will. There are the um, horizontal aspects of the law, how we are to interact with God. God has said that uh, we shall have no other God but Him, that we should have no engraven images of God, and that we should never take God's name in vain. Right? Those are a few of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. But then Paul hits on some of the, uh, the horizontal laws, and that is how we interact with one another. We're not to steal, we're not to murder, we're not to lie, we're not to covet. And so that really is how the Ten Commandments are broken up, how we obey God, how we relate to Him, and how we interact with each other in a holy and God-honoring and neighbor-loving kind of way. And so that's essentially what Paul is getting at here. And what he's saying is, is that if you are loving God and loving others, you are not going to break God's law naturally. If you are making every effort to love God and to love others, you are automatically going to keep God's law. Because in God's law, the heart, the essence of it is charity, is justice, is kindness, is mercy, is purity, it's holiness. It's, it's all of that. That's the essence of God's law. And so if we are living in love with God and each other, we will naturally keep the law. And so that's the, the point that Paul is making. You tracking with me? And so we're told that we are to love others as we love ourselves. We're to love others as we love ourselves. Now, the reason that we are told to do this is because, you know what? We love ourselves immensely. We love ourselves immensely. And so some people have tried to build a third law into this, and that is that you must first love yourself, so then you will be qualified to love others as you love yourself. But that's not what this is saying. What it's saying is we do love ourselves. That is built into that. We are people who are very concerned with our own well-being, are we not? I mean, as I've said before, from the moment that you get out of bed in the morning, you are thinking, how can I serve myself? And obviously, that's not a bad thing to to a degree. But the Bible says that we're supposed to take that same mindset and apply it towards others. How can we bless other people? How can we live for the benefit of others? How can we help better other people's lives around us? Having that kind of mindset. How can I love God more today? How can I serve Him better How can I obey Him? How can I love others, bless their lives, speak into their lives, meet a a practical need in their lives? And that is a worthy Christian life. That is living a life that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And that is what it looks like practically to live under the law of love. 
As I said, we're told to love others because we love ourselves. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, right? That's how people care for themselves. They nourish and, and cherish and take care of themselves. I got a, a little joke for you. And it, it takes, you kind of have to track with me a little bit. But I heard Pastor Chuck, I'm pretty sure it was Chuck. If it wasn't him, forgive me. Years ago, say, you know, people say that they, they hate themselves. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm just, I'm so dumb or, you know, I'm, I'm ugly and I hate myself. And he said, that's really not true because if you hated yourself, you would be glad that you were dumb and ugly. You would wish it on yourself. But the reality is you don't hate yourself. You love yourself and you are constantly looking to treasure and take care of and nourish and cherish yourself. And that's just the reality of it. And so that's why the Bible says that we ought to love others as we love ourselves. Stott, uh, one commentator, he's, he puts it this way. What the second commandment requires is that we love our neighbors as much as we do, in fact, love ourselves. This means that we will love them with a love as real and sincere as our own sinful self-love about the reality and sincerity of which there is no shadow of doubt. If then we truly love our neighbors, we will seek their good, not their harm. And we will thereby fulfill the law even though we will never completely discharge our debt. And so we are indeed supposed to love each other. So what are some practical ways in which we can do this? Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm just going to throw, throw some, some ideas out here, some suggestions. I think the first and the easiest way that we go about loving and expressing love towards each other is simply warmth, graciousness, a smile. How are you doing today? I love you. Praise the Lord. A handshake, a high five, a hug. You know, I mean, obviously some of these things are a little different right now in the season that we are in, but embrace embracing one another, expressing an appreciation, words of encouragement. You know, we have such wonderful encouragers in this church. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've been so blessed by people who bring a word of encouragement to my life when I need it the most. And you just never know when you say something to somebody, that was what they needed to make it just another day. You really don't know what people are going through in their lives. And when you speak a word of encouragement, that was the very thing that God intended to bring into their life, that special grace that was meant to uplift them and cause them to carry on. And so being those who encourage one another, who embrace with warmth and love, praying for people, whether it's privately or, or you know, together or in a group, but showing someone that you care enough to lift up their knees before the Lord. People are so loved when they are prayed for. You know, we have people here who are especially gifted at making food for people. And I got to tell you, when you get fed, you feel loved, do you not? And so it's such a blessing when we see hospitality like that, people feeding other people. You know, inviting people into your home. Again, this is a, a strange season, but I just want you to know that there's something very special about opening your home and allowing people to come in and to break bread with you and to see your life and how you live and to allow them to be in your home. It's such a big deal and such a great way to love people. You know, helping people out financially. 
I think God moves in the hearts of His people to be kind and generous to others. And again, this is one of those situations where I think oftentimes a person feels a nudge, an inclination from the Lord to bless somebody, and they don't even know what was going on in that person's life. That need was there. It was a very real need. And the person who receives this gift knows that was God that God knew that need was there, God provided that need, and the person who gave the gift doesn't even know really the, the, the half of it or the weight of that. You know, spending time with people, quality time, putting your phone up, putting it aside, giving them all of your attention, and giving them time. Um, you know, we've started doing this food giveaway here at the church once a month, and we're really wanting to love our our neighborhood here. This is the neighborhood that God has planted us in, and we want to we reach this neighborhood. And there are other ways that we want to try to be a blessing. You know, there are three schools right here. There's an old folks' home right down the street. And so we're just thinking, Lord, how can we start reaching these places and meeting practical needs and loving on our community here? And that's a way that you can get in the game with loving people. This was an interesting one I had never heard before, but Someone had suggested that you pay for the, the car behind you in a drive-thru. So you pay for their meal, and then you give a card to the, the person in the window to give to the person behind you when they pull up that just says, Jesus loves you, or, or something of that effect. And I just thought that's a really creative way of loving someone. Practical service. Practical service. There are so many physical needs that people have, and they just can't always do it. And so when you jump in there and give somebody a helping hand, whatever that may be, it really does express love. You know, I knew a pastor years ago, he was a, kind of a hopeless romantic, and uh, he was always writing his, his wife love letters and poetry, and finally she came to him one day and said, you know, I really appreciate that you do that, honey, I do, but could you please just fix the toilet? <laughs> and it was like, you know, that is how she would feel loved. That, that is how love would be best expressed for her if he would actually just fix some things around the house and stop writing love letters incessantly, you know. And so kind of hurt his feelings at first, he said, but he, he picked up what she was putting down there and realized that that was, that was a big deal. It was important. And I would say gift giving, you know. I know a lot of people who love to give gifts to one another. And the thing about gift giving um, is that it doesn't have to be expensive, it doesn't have to be anything crazy or, or big, but you know, it's just saying, hey, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about you, and I, I picked this up for you, whether it's a coffee mug or I don't know, you, you, you fill in the blank, but it's just practical little ways in which you can express to someone that you love them, that you were thinking about them, that you wanted to bless them, that you went out of your way to do that very thing. And there are so many other ways in which we can express love. And sometimes it takes creativity, you know, using your brain a little bit, thinking about, God, how can I love someone today? What's a practical way that I can express your love to somebody else? You know, I remember the first time that uh, I was asked had I loved anybody that week. I was, uh, you know, pretty new in the faith. I knew then that I really wanted to be a pastor. I was adamant about it. I was meeting with a pastor expressing my desire to get trained and to go into pastoral ministry. And he said, well, let me ask you this. Have you loved anybody this week? And I was taken aback by that. In fact, I was a little embarrassed. 
because I thought, no, I haven't. In fact, I don't even know what that, what does that even look like? Or how do I love somebody? And, uh, and so that was a real eye-opener for me. I never forgot that. So the question is, have you loved anybody this week? You know, we're told that if we want to be those who keep the law, we're going to love God and we're going to love others as ourselves. Now, I know, you know, we all have loved somebody this last week, haven't we? We've loved ourselves. That much is for sure. Have we loved somebody else? Have we loved others? Have we loved God and loved His people? And so that is number one. That is number one. That is living under the law of love. All right, point number two. Living in the light of Christ. So under this, there's going to be three, three headings. What we really have here is a, is a sense of urgency. And so I have three subpoints: Don't slumber. Don't walk in darkness. And don't set yourself up to fall. Those are kind of three subpoints we're going to see under heading number two, living in the light of Christ. So verse 11, And do this knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And so he says, and do this. What is this? Love, exactly. What's the context? What were we just talking about? Loving others. Loving God, loving others. He says, do this, knowing the time, that it's high time to awake out of sleep. So we are to fulfill the law of love by loving our neighbors with a true sense of urgency. It is time to wake up. Wake up from the slumber. Wake up from your sleep. And get busy loving people with urgency. That's the idea here. He says, knowing the time. Knowing the time. Morris says this. Knowing the time, Paul says, certain conduct is appropriate. His word for time points to the character of the age in which he found himself. A time in which Christ had come and made all things new and which pointed forward to the consummation of all things. So what he's saying here is not like the time of day. You know what time it is, guys. You know what time it is. It's 11.10. That's not what he's saying. Or you know what time of the year it is. It's, it's summertime. Or you know what year we're living in. That's not the idea. He's talking about the character of the age. Look around you folks. Look at the day and age that we are living in. Look at what is going on in the world. That's the idea. And may I just say, look around. I mean, I think we all have been with eyes wide open. We are living in crazy times, are we not? I don't think it's just going to get better. I, w I hope it does. I really wish that it would. But I, I just feel like, well, you know, we got a few more months of 2020 left. So I figure we got at least 10 more crazy things that will happen before 2021, right? But the idea is knowing the times, looking around, realizing the times that we are in should create within us a sense of urgency. We need to awake from our sleep. We need to awake from our napathy, right? And so knowing the, the, the age that we are in. You know, this same language was used by Jesus when talking about the days of Noah. Matthew chapter 24. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. 
And there's a lot of debate about what that means exactly. What were the days of Noah like exactly? And it says there that people were, were conducting their lives as normal day to day. They were being married, given in marriage. Life was normal. But conversely, what else was the day of Noah marked by? Extreme violence and wickedness. Extreme violence and wickedness. Well, when you couple those together, what you have is an age where there is extreme violence and wickedness and it is commonplace. It's so normal. Life is going on as usual. People are, are conducting the, the daily affairs of life, working, starting businesses, getting married, having children, life as usual in a time when it's as bad as it can, can be, it would seem. And so that was kind of the idea of the days of Noah. And Jesus said that as those days were, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. And then Paul says that we're to open our eyes and to look with urgency and to love with urgency, recognizing the, the time that it is, the, the age, uh, the character of the age that we are in. We're told that we are to awake from sleep. What does that mean? Well, it's the sleep of false security. Everything's good. Everything's all right. False security, slothfulness, complacency, neglect, and indifference. And may I add to that lukewarmness. Now, these are the kinds of things that I think more times than not describe us. Slothful, indifferent, you know, not really worried about it, not thinking too much about it. Not really hot, not really cold, just kind of lukewarm, tepid, so-so. And we're told that we are to break forth out of that sleep and to love with urgency because he says now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You know, when you put your trust in Christ and you believed on Him for salvation, His return is closer now than when you believed on Him. Every single day, every passing day, his return is coming sooner and closer. And we're to live our lives like that, recognizing that. You know, I think too often we see time kind of like a river. It's just the water's just flowing. You know, it's coming from one source, going to another place, and it's just flowing. But time truly is, God's time truly is like a, uh, an hourglass. You know, there's going to come a time when that time is up. It is out. God has appointed a day. God has appointed a time. For some of us, the time that God has allotted us will be out even before His return. But should we be alive in that day, that day is coming. And every day that passes is a day that we're getting closer to it. And so we have to live like that, folks. We have to live with that kind of urgency. Walking in the day, walking in the light, recognizing that our Lord, His turn, His return is, is soon coming. For His coming is, is sooner than when we first believed. The day is at hand. And so that brings us to B, don't walk in the darkness. When you're living in the light of Christ, first, don't slumber. Awake from your sleep. Secondly, don't walk in darkness. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So we're told that the night is far spent. 
And the night would, would refer to uh, the, the, the condition of the age that we are in, man's wickedness, man's sinfulness, and Satan's control. Because we are living, we are present in a kingdom of darkness, are we not? Now, we're not of that kingdom. We've been rescued out of that kingdom, and we have been brought into the kingdom of light. But here we are on this earth, in this world, present in the kingdom of of darkness, and that night is far spent. We're told the the idea of spent is uh, to cut forward, to advance. It was originally used of a pioneer cutting his way through brushwood, and so just about to come out the other side, cutting through the brushwood, cutting your way through, advancing through it until you come out the other end. And that's kind of the idea of the Christian. The night is far spent. We are in this dark world, and we are cutting a path through. We are pilgrims trying to make our way through the darkness, and we're just about out of the other side. The day is at hand. The day of Christ's return and reign is soon. And we're to live that way with that kind of urgency. He says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. It's going to get practical here. And so if we're living in the light, we're living in urgency, we are not to sleep, not to slumber, and we are to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So first it's casting off the works of darkness. It's kind of like taking something off and laying it aside, a, a filthy garment. Take it off and lay it aside. The Bible uses this kind of language. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here he's talking about a runner, a runner who is running in a race. Now, this we get this, right? If you're running in a race... Are you going to be wearing ankle weights? Are you going to be wearing a weighted vest? Are you going to have a trench coat on? No, you don't want anything that's cumbersome, something that is going to weight you down, something that is going to stop you from running at full speed. Well, that's what the Christian life is like. We're told that we are not to have things in our lives that are slowing us down. We're not to have things in our lives that are weighting us down. And you know what? These can be morally neutral things. They're called weights. He does make a distinction. There is sin, and then there are those weights. Things that they're not necessarily bad, they're not necessarily good, they're neutral, but they stop us from running as swiftly as we could, as swiftly as we should. And may I just say, we all have that in our lives. And it may look very different from person to person, but we all have things in our lives that are causing us to not be able to run as swiftly as we could as swiftly as we should. We have things that distract us. We have things that kind of cloud things. They kind of askew our vision. We have things that are fighting for our devotion, fighting for our loyalty, fighting for our affections. We have things that are truly weighting us down, and we're told that we're to cast those things off. You know, like for me, I feel like the news is, is a very real weight in my life. When uh, I watch the news, different outlets, media outlets, I just get angry. Can I just be honest with you? I mean, 
sometimes furious, and that just begins to build up in me. And I'm not thinking Christ-like thoughts when I'm feeling that way. I'm not thinking about love. I'm not thinking about mercy. I'm not thinking about compassion. I'm thinking very different things, radically different things. My, may I submit to you, that's a weight. And we all have them. And so we're to cast that off, lay that aside. Susanna Wesley, maybe you've heard of Charles Wesley. He was the John Wesley and Charles Wesley. So they were the founders of the, uh, the Methodist church. And so John Wesley uh, wrote to his mother, and he asked her for her definition of sin. Now, she was uh, an amazing woman. I mean, she was a theologian like most modern-day theologians can't even compare to. And um, I had to read some books on the Trinity in one of the classes I took, and these theology books were actually quoting her on the doctrine of the Trinity. It was amazing. And so she said this, Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Anything that causes you to grow, uh, grow cold in the things of the Lord, anything that distracts you from the things of God, anything that would weight you down from running the race, anything that would cause you to lose sight of the vision, and what is that? To love God and to love others with urgency. Anything that hinders you from that, that is a weight, best-case scenario, and it is a sin, worst-case scenario, and we're to cast that off so that we can run swiftly. Amen? We're to set that aside, and we are to put on the armor of light, we are told. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 gives us some insight into this. It says this, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." So we are those who live in the day. We are to, to wake up from our slumber. And we are to live with this urgency. And we are to put on the armor of light. And what, are, what is that here? We're told there's the breastplate of faith and love. And that, that guards our midsection, the breastplate. Faith and love. We are to put on faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope. We are to clothe ourselves with faith, love, and hope. Those are the things that we are to guard ourselves with. We are to cast off the weight. We are to cast off the works of darkness. We are to put on faith, hope, and love. For those are truly our shields. They shield us. And so that is what we are to bear. We are to bear the armor of light. In verse 13 it says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So he says, let us walk. 
You'll hear this frequently in the Bible, to walk. What does that mean? When it talks about walking, it, it means in a figurative way how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, how we carry ourselves, how we walk. And so when we would say, how's your walk with the Lord going? The idea is your relationship with Him. How, how is it going? And so how do we carry ourselves? How do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? Well, we're told that we are to walk properly. We're to walk properly. And that word means decently, honorably, honestly. That's how we are to be characterized. Those who walk decently, honorably, honestly. So we're to cast off the weight, cast off the darkness. We're to walk decently, honorably, honestly, loving God, loving others with the, the, the breastplate of love and faith and the, the helmet of, of hope. That is the Christian life. That is the way that we are to live. That is the way that we are to walk. As in the day, he says, as in the day, we are those who walk and live in the light. So what is this? What's the deal with the day? What's the, what's the idea behind this? Why does he keep referencing daylight? What does darkness generally represent? Ignorance, wickedness, um, hiding oneself, right? Crime, the idea is crimes are committed at night in the dark when you're uh, not able to be seen. That's, that's when the, the crazies come out, right? You hear that kind of language. That's the idea. That's, that's darkness. Well, that is not so for a Christian. We are to be those who live in the light, and that means truth. That means love. That means purity. That means transparency. We don't have anything to hide who I am in the public is who I am in my home, in the private, in my private life. We are consistent. We are faithful to the Lord. We are walking decently and honestly. We are those who live in the light as He is in the light. Amen? Conversely, he says that we are not to be those who are living in revelry and drunkenness. This word revelry, it, it has kind of morphed over the years. It used to mean like in a village where they were bringing in a harvest, say grapes in particular. And uh, there would be people in the village who would be celebrating this. And as, as they were going along the way, these, these groups, bystanders, would join the procession. And these were villagers who were merrymaking, as it, it says here in this one definition. And uh, it took place at the gathering of grapes. But it changed. It later became a riotous party. A drunken feast, which hosted unbridled immorality, hence revelings, debauched partying. That's the idea. And such were some of us. That, that was us. But now we are children of the day, children of the light. He says that you're not to live in lewdness and lust. That's promiscuity and licentiousness. Trying to keep it family friendly in here, so I'm using some some very friendly translations. Okay, strife. It literally means a readiness to quarrel, a readiness to fight, having a contentious spirit. I love this affection for dispute. That's what strife is. Affection for dispute. You know anybody like that? Maybe have you ever been that way? You just want to fight. You just love to fight. Just looking to pick an argument, start a fight. That is the idea of strife. I know I've told you all this story before, but there are some in here I know have not heard it. 
And so years ago, um, my pastor in Tennessee was talking about the church that he grew up in in Louisiana. It was a little a little Baptist church on the river. And he said that when the deacons would come together and have their, their business meetings, when something came up that they couldn't agree on, they would just go outside and fist fight. And that was how they settled the matter. And so uh, I remember after hearing this, I, uh, I was going to a Calvary chapel and I knew this Baptist uh, brother that, I mean, he was, he was like, man, if you're not Baptist, you're probably not even saved. That was kind of his mentality. And so I couldn't wait to tell him this story. And I was like, so is that how you, you Baptist? Is that how you, you handle things? And he got so mad and he said, hillbilly Baptist, maybe. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're not to be those people. That's not how we deal with issues. We don't pick fights. We're not looking to be quarrelsome. We're not looking for strife. We are to walk properly as in the day. Not to be envious, jealous. Um, it's an interesting word here. For envy, the, the Greek definition says this. It's an onomatopoeic term that mimics the sound of water bubbling over from heat and perhaps derived from the word to boil. So it's burning emotion, uh, figuratively red hot, and it can be used negatively to mean jealousy, and that's the idea here. Envy, you know, it's, jealousy is like I, I want what someone else has, and envy is like I don't want that person to have what they have. And it's an ugly thing, and it's not fitting of a Christian, of someone who is to walk properly as in the day. And so we're to cast all of that off, to cast that off. And then C, verse 14, we're told not to set ourselves up to fall. This is not to set ourselves up to fall, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And so what I want to point out here, what we're really seeing, and this is such a fundamental, foundational Christian truth, is the putting off and putting on principle. And again, I referenced earlier the, uh, the idea of thinking that somehow you're going to get right and then come to God. And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And a, another thing that people will often do is they'll say, well, I'm just going to quit doing these things. You fill in the blank, whatever that is. You know that it's, it's not consistent with with what is befitting of a Christian. And, and so uh, you say, I'm just going to stop doing this particular sin. And you are white-knuckling that thing. You are fighting for your life to stop doing this thing. And you are miserable. Well, the, the truth of Christianity is you don't just stop doing what you were once doing. You have to put on something else. You have new affections. You have new goals. You have new purpose, new desires. So you don't just stop being who you were. You don't just stop doing what you did. Now you have given yourself to the Lord and you have put on Christ and He has given you everything and it's all new in Him. And that's the idea of putting off and putting on. And we just keep seeing this come up over and over in this text. And here we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 20 says this, But you have not so learned Christ. He just listed off a, a pretty wide list of sins, and he says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. So we're to put off the old man. We are to put that off like a filthy garment, and we are to put on the new man, to put on Christ. 
a new heart, new affections, a new hope, a new love, a new direction. That's the idea. That is the Christian life. It is a putting off and a putting on. Well, we're told here that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ray Steadman says it like this, and I love this. When I got up this morning, I put on my clothes, and so did you. I put on my clothes with the intention that they would be a part of me all this day, and they would go where I go and do what I do. They will cover me and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything that you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. We are to cast off the works of darkness. We are to set aside everything that weights us down. And we are to put on the armor of light. We are to put on Christ. And so living with the consciousness of Jesus, living in the reality of Christ, waking up in the morning and, and bowing the knee to Him afresh. God, You are my God. And I thank You for all that You have allowed me to enjoy in this life. I thank You above all things for Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Thank You that You've purchased my salvation and You've brought me into a loving relationship with You. Thank you for this day. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not promised. But what I have here, God, you have created. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Would you go where I go today? Would you lead me? Would you protect me? Would you fill me? Would you give me an opportunity to serve you and to love other people? And then going on throughout your day in the reality that Christ is indeed with you by his spirit. Living in the reality of God's presence and goodness in your life. Putting on Christ as it were and allowing the world to see Christ in you. Amen? Amen? And so that is the idea of putting on Jesus Christ. And then he says, conversely, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So this is a really interesting verse because historically there was a, a, a character, a, a man in church history named Augustine of Hippo. Jess did a, a, a Devo a few weeks back uh, on Monica, which was Augustine's mom, and she was a praying mom and prayed for years, and Augustine came to faith in Christ, and he became one of the greatest theologians that this world has ever known, and to this day, Christians are impacted greatly by the works of this man, Augustine, and there's just no way to truly understand, estimate, or calculate the impact that he has made on Christianity. It's incredible. Well, he had his own struggles, to be sure. He was a man who was seeking God and struggling immensely in the process. He had sin that just absolutely gripped him that he could not break free from. And he was searching and he was seeking. And one day he was in this garden and he was feeling the full weight of this sin in his life. And he literally was beginning to just rend his clothes and beat his head and he was just doubled over in agony over the sin in his life. And then all of a sudden he heard a voice. It was the sound of a child playing somewhere nearby. He couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. It was just a kid. And they were saying over and over, look in the book. Look in the book. And he started trying to think, is, this a is that a game? Is that a game that kids play? He could not, couldn't think of a game that it could be. So he, he took that to mean this was a sign from God 
and I need to go back and open up my Bible. I need to open up the Bible. And so he went home, he got his copy of the Word of God, opened it, and what verse do you think he landed on? This verse right here. And it spoke right into the situation of his life, and he was converted there on the spot. That was where he came to true faith, saving faith in Christ. His life was radically changed, and it was this verse right here. And it says, To put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And the idea is don't provide for yourself an opportunity to fall. There's plenty of opportunities around us, is there not? We have no shortage of opportunities to fall every day. So you don't need to help yourself by giving yourself more opportunities. Okay, we don't have to provide for ourselves opportunities to fall. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't go places that could be harmful to you. And I think you know what I mean. There are places that we have no business going. There are places we have no business even driving past. Don't have relationships that could derail you. Don't have certain people in your lives that you know are going to pull you down faster than you're going to pull them up. Don't have personal belongings that can be detrimental to you. I've known people that have had to get rid of their computers or their, their smartphones, and I commend that. You know, If there's something in your life that needs to go, something that's weighting you down, something that is sin to you, don't make provision for, for yourself to fall. Cast that off. Get rid of it. We are, the reality is, we are to run from sin, not towards it. We are to run from sin, not towards it. You got that? Genesis chapter 39. We know the story of Joseph. We know it well. And he was living in uh, Potiphar's house. Potiphar was his master. And Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph. And she was regularly trying to, to seduce him. And he would not succumb to that. And so verse 11, it says, But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, that is Potiphar's wife, and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled. He ran. He literally ran. He turned around and ran out of there as fast as he could. And that's how we should treat sin. That's how we should treat sin. Run from it. Flee from it. Don't make provisions for yourself to fall. Get out of there with that kind of urgency. You know, but we don't, we don't do that so often. What do we do? We like to toy with sin. We like to play with it. Instead of treating it like it's a wildfire, a potential wildfire. And that's a fitting way to see it. That's exactly what it is. It grows fast, rapidly. It's uncontrollable and incontainable, and that's the way we should see sin. And Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 does describe it that way. It says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Well, that's an obvious answer. Can you pick up fire and not be burned by it? Obviously, you're going to be burned by it, but we don't treat sin that way. We don't see it like that. We think, maybe just this one time, or maybe I won't quite do that, but I'll just do this over here. I'll just play with it a little bit, right? You know, I had a, a situation like that in my own life. You know, I struggled with smoking for years, I guess since I was like 13, 12, 13. And uh, as a Christian, I had this conviction that I should not smoke. I was teaching in the children's ministry, and, and so that was something that I was, it was as challenging as it was, it was a fight that I was fighting and I worked at this wood shop and 
uh, guys were dipping, you know, chewing tobacco. And so I thought, well, I'll just ask a guy if I can have some of his chewing tobacco. And so I, uh, I did, and I just about got sick from it, right? And I was sitting out on the back deck trying to recover, and my boss came out there and saw me, and he was, uh, he was startled by that, and he thought maybe I had, had relapsed, you know, was using drugs or something, and he called me in his office and said, Rob, I'm just going to ask you straight out, are you using? And I was kind of shocked that he asked me that, and I said, no. And then I realized what had happened. He saw, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I was just, um, I had, had uh, some chewing tobacco, and it about made me sick. And he said, well, I thought that you were convicted about that. And I was like, well, about smoking, yes, you know, cigarettes. But, you know, it's, it's different. And he said, really? He said, okay. He said, don't you teach in the children's ministry? I said, yeah. And he said, well, what I would love to see you do is teach those kids how to stay as far away from sin as possible, not, not how to get as close to it as they can without actually doing it. And I was like, oh, man, I never forgot that. And that was just right between the eyes. And so that's the truth of the matter. We want to stay as far away from it as we can, not get as close to it as we can without actually touching it. Right? Well, that's how we live so often. But Paul says that we are to be those who live in the light. We are children of the day. And we are to cast off the works of darkness and we're not to make provision for the flesh and we're not to toy with sin we are to have cautious and deliberate lives when it comes to our walk of faith cautious and deliberate lives and I'll, I'll close with this verse in Ephesians chapter 5 Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 it says look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so Paul says that we are to look carefully how we walk. The New King James translates that to walk circumspectly. It's not a word that we often use. But it comes from the Greek word akrobos, and that is the word that we would get acrobatics from. And it's, it's like walking on a tightrope, exact, precise. You are watching with everything that you've got, that line, because if you fall, that's it. It's over for you. And that, in some way, is how the Christian life should be. We, are, we realize in this world that we live, it's like a minefield that we're walking through. And we're watching what we're doing. We're watching where we're going. We're giving great attention to the things that we are involving ourselves in or the things that we are not. We are to look carefully how we walk, it says. We are to be those who are filled with the Spirit. I love this word, filled. It's it's used to describe 13 times the Pharisees who were filled with hypocrisy, right? And so we know that. That's a great picture for us because we know how hypocritical the Pharisees were. Well, the same way that they were filled with hypocrisy, we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. We are to be those who are overflowing with the Spirit. That word is also used of the net. When uh, Peter was thrown, told to cast the net into the sea and they brought up so many fish that it could barely contain, it was tearing the net. 
That, it, the net was filled with fish. We are to be filled with the Spirit like that. We're to be giving thanks always. Giving thanks always to the Lord, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is a worthy life. That is living a worthy life. That is a life that is under the law of love, and that is a life that is living in the light of Christ. That is a worthy life, brothers and sisters. That is the life that we are called to live. That is the life that we are empowered to live. That is a life that flows out of a full understanding of who God is and what God has done and what God has commanded us to do and to be. Amen?